You are listening to a message from First Assembly of God. We are a church on a mission to restore everyone, everywhere, to a loving and holy God. If today's message inspires you in any way, would you consider sharing it with a friend? This is just one of the many ways that you can be a part of what God is doing here at First Assembly. Last week we began uh, our new series we're going to do through the summer. I will be out of town on Father's Day on a one-week vacation, and I'm thankful to God for that. We haven't been away for a full week since last July, and uh, I'm ready to uh, unplug and and just be refreshed for a little while. So Pastor Dave is speaking on a Father's Day Sunday. We'll miss you, uh, but I'll watch a little bit of it on YouTube just to make sure the team is doing a good job. Um, So we'll miss you next Sunday, and then we'll pick up the, the, the series Uh, the Sunday following. So through this series, people are taking their flat pastors different places, and so I've got some uh, some pictures from their journeys with uh, Joel here. This is this is a unique one. This is the Bond family with Debbie Biddle in Florida, and they didn't have a uh, physical flat pastor, so they used a digital flat pastor, which works just as well. There I am on the uh, looks like the iPhone Plus, probably there. Next one. We've got a journey with Joel down with, with uh, Debbie in, in Florida as well. That was a popular place for me to be this last week in Florida. And then a couple more. Um, sometimes you don't go very far away on trips, but you post a really good picture. So here's the Quiggins family, their household with a flat pastor, Joel and Mikey. I love your mosaic T-shirt. Here I am with my uncle, actually, <laughs> um, visiting my, my gnome my uncle. Um, That's where we get our genetic height from. And here I am having lunch with my favorite friend, uh, of course. Um, uh, I got flat pastor and stuffed Jesus. I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. Then I think we've got, do we have one more? That may be it for today. Is that it? There we go. That's it. So let's give it up for our flat pastor adventures. A lot of fun. So make sure you take the uh, life-size flat pastor Joel with you. Uh, wherever you go this Sunday. Last week we began week one of this summer-long series through the last half of the book of Acts. We've been at this for three summers. We've just taken about eight weeks through the summer to begin with the origins of the church. Acts chapters 1 through 6 established it with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Miracles are done. The church thrives. The church grows. Jerusalem then to Judea. How did they leave Jerusalem to get Judea and Samaria? Well, through persecution and pain. That was last summer. And the church expanded through one of the dark seasons. Yet even in darkness, the light of Jesus prevails. And the church grows and is established beyond the Jewish center of Jerusalem. And then last week, we kicked off this third big chunk of the book of Acts, where the good news of Jesus goes beyond not just Jerusalem and Judea, but it gets to the uttermost parts of the earth And that began with a diverse church in the city of Antioch. And it is there as this group of leaders were praying and fasting that the Holy Spirit speaks to them. He says, I want you to set apart these two individuals, Saul and Barnabas, and they're going to do a special work for me. So the church prays and plans and probably raises money, figures out the logistics, lays their hands on these two and says, we let you go. They let part of their pastoral team, their leadership team, leave. And they trusted them to the Lord and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And off they went to Cyprus. And we looked at that story last week with 
Sergius, the governor and the barrier in his life, which was this false prophet. You need the power of the Holy Spirit, but the teaching of God. And these two, being astonished that God has a way for you to live that is completely different than the way the world says to live. That astonishment with the path that God has for us to live, coupled with the power to break through the barriers in our life, is what we need. And now we're going to move on to the next chapter. We're going to finish the first missionary journey of Paul. I've got a picture here. kind of shows where Paul went. He left Antioch in Syria. You see it there on the left, traveled to the island of Cyprus. That's where we were last week. And then he heads into what is now modern-day Turkey. And he visits a few cities there in, uh, in south-central Turkey. And then he makes his way back to Antioch and reports what happens at the end of chapter 14. This week, we're going to wrap that up and we're going to look at one interesting episode from Paul's missionary journey. And then next week, we'll pick it up in chapter 15. God, I pray, as we look at this seemingly ridiculous story, that we probably are tempted just to read over so quickly and think, man, that is bizarre. That has nothing to do with me. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to see that it has everything, everything, to do with us today. Jesus, not much has changed in human nature over these 2,000 years. And I pray that our heart and our mind would be open to hear the voice and the move of your spirit today in Christ's name. Can we say amen together? Amen. Amen. So let's pick up this story. In Acts chapter 14, Paul is going on his missionary journeys, and we see this pattern all throughout the first missionary journey, and it continues through the rest of the book of Acts, where Paul and his partner, in this case Barnabas, set forth this pattern. They preach the word of God wherever they go. They teach, they speak, they explain, and the power of the Spirit compels them to explain the story of God, the story of Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and the life we can have through Jesus and God. So they preach, and then God confirms their preaching with miraculous signs and wonders, and then there's persecution and pain, and often they're kicked out of the town. And we see this established over and over. Preaching first, miracles second. I want us to see that. Let's say that together. Preaching is, and the miracles confirm. And I think there's a godly pattern there. We see this in verse 3. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders by their hands. They would begin with powerful preaching. And God would say, that story is not a myth. It is true. And there's power in those words. And God would perform miracles to confirm his teaching. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. Miracles have saved no one. How many know someone that's had something miraculous happen in their life, and ten years later they're not living for Jesus? Miracles confirm the truth of God's word, but it's God's word and the power of God's daily grace in your life that transforms you. So Paul knows that. The Spirit knows that. So everywhere Paul went, he preached 
with power and authority, declaring that Jesus is the way to know God. And the Holy Spirit showed up to do miraculous things to confirm his word. And that's what's happening in the last part, or the middle part, actually, of chapter 14 in the story we're looking at today. This is verse 8. While they, Barnabas and Saul, now going to be referred to as Paul, while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so this man had never walked before. He was sitting and listening as Paul did what? So you know the story. Luke's introducing a cripple from birth, and you know what God's going to do, don't you? But God is doing that miracle in the context of Paul's preaching. So Paul's preaching, he's teaching. There's no reference to a synagogue. This is not a Jewish community. This is not a community that's familiar with the Old Testament of the Torah. He's speaking to people who've never heard anything about the God of Israel and about his promised Savior, the Messiah Jesus. So this man was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized this guy has a gift of healing budding up within him. There's a gift of faith there, and Paul recognizes it, sees it, and then begins to speak to him. So Paul called to the cripple in a loud voice, Stand up! Stand up! And the cripple from birth stood and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect. We can assume Paul's probably speaking in Greek. It's a language they would have all understood. But in this moment of excitement, as they see this man from their own village that they knew had been crippled from birth, he jumps up and starts walking around. They revert from Greek back to their language of birth, their own local dialect, what they probably spoke in their own homes, in the privacy, just with their own immediate family. The crowd saw what Paul had done, and they shouted in their local dialect, These men are gods in human form. So they decided together that Barnabas must be the Greek god Zeus and that Paul would be the Greek god Hermes since he was the chief speaker. So Zeus, the ruler, the mighty one, in the Roman mythology structure would have been Jupiter. Same god figure in their mythology. For Hermes, it would have been Mercury for the Romans. Same stories, two different language groups, and that's who they determine Barnabas must be Zeus, come to visit us. Paul must be Hermes, come to visit us. Now, the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths and flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. This must have taken some number of hours. They would have left that amphitheater or that marketplace where Paul was preaching. The man was healed. They began speaking in their own native dialect. These guys are the Greek god Zeus and Hermes. And they run to where? The pastor of Zeus. They go to the temple outside town. Zeus has come to visit us. So they gather bulls. People sacrifice. They bring things that they possess. Bulls would have been probably the most expensive animal they owned and they would gladly sacrifice it to Zeus and Hermes. And so they gather together the great crowds of people, 
And they began preparing and planning to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, who they assumed was Zeus and Hermes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul figured out what was happening, at some point they said, what's going on? What's all this, this parade coming? Why all of these animals and wreaths and shouts of celebration? And someone says, not in their local dialect, but speaks to Paul and Barnabas in Greek and explains what's happening. When Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothes. They ripped it in dismay and ran out among the crowds of people. Friends, stop, stop, stop. Why are you doing this? We're just mere human beings, just like you. We've come to bring you good news that you should turn away from these worthless things and instead turn to the living God who made the heavens and made the earth, made the sea and everything in them. Paul makes no reference to Abraham, David, the Old Testament, because they had no background in that. Go back to chapter 13 when Paul is preaching in a synagogue, and he goes all through the Old Testament story because the Jews understood that Jesus, or they were needing to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Torah. This crowd of people had no background of the Jewish faith. They had no background of Yahweh, had no background of the promised Messiah. So he starts with creation. This is a worthless pursuit. I'm here to proclaim to you the God that really created everything. Paul continues, in the past, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself. He never left all these people without evidence of his goodness. For example, God sends you rains and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. How ridiculous is that story? This is one of those stories that you say, my, my, my. Weren't those people ignorant back then? We read through the book of Acts and say, how ridiculous. These people bringing bulls and wreaths and sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. I'm so glad we're not as ignorant anymore. This story, this story gets directly to the heart of what's in me. And what's in you? The human condition hasn't changed much over the last 2,000 years. Let me ask you, why did the people, why did this crowd in Lystra think Paul was Hermes and Barnabas Zeus? Why did they think we should worship God by bringing, or their mythological gods, by bringing bulls and wreaths and sacrifices. and This was their life. This was their culture. This is all that they knew. They knew something supernatural had visited them. They knew there was a fresh spiritual awakening in their town. And their response was exactly the way they were trained to respond. In fact, I, I doubt if many of you know this, but about 50 years before this moment, in the year 9 AD, a Latin poet 
writer named Ovid. I've got a picture. This is a, a 1556 edition of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. So it is a collection of Latin epic poems and stories of Greek mythological gods from creation forward. How the world came to be in the great stories of Greek mythology. And guess what happened in this book, or what is described in this book, in the Valley of Lystra. Guess what supernatural thing, according to this writing in 9 AD, 50 years before Paul showed up, guess what happened in that valley? Two Greek gods showed up in human form. Those two Greek gods were, it's not a trick question, those two Greek gods were Zeus and Hermes. So when this mythological story written 50 years earlier, Zeus and Hermes take on human form, show up in this valley, and go door-to-door selling Girl Scout cookies. Not really. But they go door-to-door in human form as peasants looking for hospitality. Who will accept us? And every villager shuts the door, except one peasant family invites them in. And the next day, Zeus and Hermes take this family that showed them generosity and hospitality up into the mountainside. And the entire village, all that had rejected them, was wiped out in a flood. So why would these villagers think something supernatural is here? So I will respond to Zeus and Hermes. It was in their culture. They only responded with the way they had been taught. And in fact, they were compelled to do something good. But it was misdirected. I want us to think through just briefly, and then we'll respond and ask the Lord to help show us our own lives. What was going on in their hearts as they sought to bring worship to their mythological gods of Zeus and Hermes? There are two real core issues here that I want us to address about our own human nature, about our own human lives. Number one is pride. Pride simply says this, my way of worshiping God is right. Because my background, my experiences, my life confirms that I'm right. I will worship God the way I want to worship God. Pride always puts yourself first. Pride always projects what you think onto God. I'm sure in that crowd 2,000 years ago, many in their pride said, I don't care what they say, you are Zeus, you are Hermes, and I'm going to continue to do this. Because this is how I've always thought. This is how I've been raised. This is what my culture says. This is what I know. But there were certainly some who said, really? There's something different. And they were willing to lower their pride to hear about a new way of knowing God. With pride, we always see God through our own lens. We only worship God through our own preferences. 
Let me speak some things. Sometimes it's our family. It's our culture we project on God. It's our family dynamics. It's our community background. We form a framework through which we experience life. And we bring that into our relationship with God. God thinks of me the way my dad thought of me. God speaks into my life the way my mom speaks into my life. We take what we've learned and we project that onto who God is. And it creates this barrier of pride. I know what God is saying. I know what God is doing because of this, this, and this. It can be our background. It could be our family. It could be our religious history. Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, you name it. Assembly of God. I don't care what it is. We think we know what to do because we've always done it this way. And sometimes God needs to lower our pride to say, God, like Paul, I confess, I see you dimly and only through a blurred glass. And we say, God, I don't know it all, and I'm willing to grow. Maybe our personality traits that we project on God. We say, this is just who I am, therefore God needs to be like me. And that's simply not true, because your personality is about as flawed as mine. And God wants to break down that pride. Romans chapter 1 makes it so clear. For although they knew God, that means they had experiential knowledge. They had experienced the supernatural. They had experienced the goodness of God. They had experienced the character of who God is. Although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God. In other words, they didn't put Him first. They kept themselves first. They didn't honor him or give him thanks. In other words, they took credit for everything they thought their life was producing. Those two flaws. I know you a little bit, God, but I'm going to honor myself above you. I'm going to give thanks to me instead of giving thanks to you. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming, listen to these words, claiming to be wise, I know God. I know God because he's going to be a lot like me. Claiming to be wise, they became, say it, and in their foolishness they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And Paul, of course, is referring to idolatry of his age, but can I tell you the idolatry in the American age is just as damning. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is a core human problem. The problem in Lystra was not their ignorance. It was deeper than that. It was pride. Were they willing to say, wow, maybe there's a different approach to knowing God Our pride prevents us from experiencing a God that is greater than our experiences and our background. From the newest Jesus-curious person who's just beginning on this journey, one barrier you will confront your entire spiritual journey is your pride. It starts early. It starts soon. God, this is how I think I should live. And God says, well... How you think really isn't that important. 
And we've been taught our whole life that what I think is what's most important. And from the very beginning all the way to someone who's been journeying with Jesus for 60 years has to constantly lay down the desire to be first. There's a second thing that hits all of us here. Paul and Barnabas, as they're confronting this culture, listen to what they said. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn away from these worthless things. Let me tell you, vanity, pride, and vanity. Pursuing worthless things. The ESV translation puts it that way, that you would turn away from what is vain. Vain means if you took all of those efforts, accumulated all of it, added up the value, it is worth zero. It's the key word of the book of Ecclesiastes, used about 40 times. It's vain, it's vain, it's vain. All my knowledge, vanity. All my money, vanity. All the sex, vanity. All the pride and fame, vanity, 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 vanity. It's nothing at the end of the day. Why were these people coming to make sacrifices? Because they didn't want to have happened to them what they thought happened in the story. If I make Zeus and Hermes happy, my life will be okay. If I give my resources, my time, my money, my efforts to Zeus and Hermes, maybe I'll have a good life. If I can keep the gods happy, I can be happy. I'll have the good life. And thankfully, Americans don't ever give stuff, give things, give material possessions, pursue things that they think will make them happy, but they won't. We're no different than they are. We pursue what we think will bring happiness, and it's vanity. At the end of the day, it's nothing. Two sad, very public suicides this week. Suicide is a very dynamic, multi-layered, multifaceted things. I lost one of my, I won't call him a close college buddy, but I lost a college buddy to suicide at Bible college, a great young man. And I lost my uncle to suicide. But when we think, when the world thinks we've accumulated everything, we've got the wealth, we've got the fame, at the end of the day, It's vanity. It's vanity. This culture was essentially saying, if I make the gods happy, I will be okay. If Zeus and Hermes are pleased with me, if I do this, I'll have the good life. So you fill in the blank. If I only had this, my life would be good. What's your vain pursuit? If I only had, you fill in the blank, then I'd have the good life. What is it, money? If you only had a little bit more. If only you wouldn't have had to take that other job. If only you wouldn't have lost this. If only you wouldn't have had this expense, then my life would be better. If only I could take this route. It's vanity. Vanity. If I only had more money. If only the dollar would grow, then I would have the good life. 
Let me ask you, what do we sacrifice so we can gain more money? What do we give up in exchange? The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money isn't evil, but when we love it, it will bring evil after evil after evil. The vain pursuit of money will lead to destruction. A spirit of thanksgiving gives. A worshipful tithe surrenders that to the Lord. and says, I do not pursue the vanity of money. Each time I purposefully live below the maximum, I'm reinforcing that money is vanity. I could gain the whole world and lose my soul, and I'm not going to do that. Maybe it's your image. If I only had this look, if I only maintained this reputation, it's impossible to follow Jesus and follow image at the same time. Got a funny picture. Not a funny, well, maybe I'm funny. I got a picture. This is Ricky. Uh, Ricky was with us with Teen Challenge Choir. Can we give it up for Teen Challenge Choir? It was an awesome Sunday. We were downstairs after service. Our own Celebrate Recovery team made a great meal for Teen Challenge. And I was down there, I was talking to the guys. Hey, where's you from? What's your story? This guy, Ricky, says, you know, I'm from Englewood. I said, Englewood? I got a friend, he pastors there. He goes, Pastor Moody? I said, yeah, Charles Moody. We're buddies, I know him. And so we started talking. He goes, you know, Charles found me on the street. He goes, I was on the street. And Pastor Moody rescued me. When you give to missions, this is... Pastor Moody, Life Center Church in Inglewood, that's us. We're a part of Ricky's story. And Ricky said, Pastor Moody found me on the street. Well, fast forward a week, I was with Pastor Moody. I sent him this picture, and we met up, and he told me this story. He goes, I found him on the street. He was a wreck. And Pastor Moody says this to me. You know what I ask the guys on the street before they go to Teen Challenge? He goes, it's not hard to tell if they're ready. He goes, I, just one question. I look for something on their body that's their image. I find their, their beard, their hair, an earring, a nose ring, something that he says, I know that's their image. And he says, you know, you can't go to Teen Challenge just to get rid of that. And he doesn't know if it's true or not. It doesn't matter if it's true. What matters is if they'll say, I'll take out my earring right now. What do you mean? I have to shave? Absolutely. Take it all. He says, because the moment someone on the street says, oh, no, 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 this ain't going nowhere. He goes, their image is more important than their salvation. And they won't go there. It's no different for us. Your image is vanity. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You don't have to be the one that always raises your voice and speaks. Let your image die so you can pursue Jesus. Money is vanity. Image, vanity. Will you let me go further? I don't know if you will. Family. If only my kids are always happy. If only I give them everything they need and want and desire. Then we'll have a good family. And it's vanity. Your job, mom and dad, isn't to solve all their problems and give them everything so they become the most narcissistic generation on the planet. It's vanity. 
It's vanity to try to please mom and dad for your whole life. It's vanity to respond to everyone in our family that wants to control us. You cannot serve the vanity of your house and serve Jesus. Why do you think Jesus so boldly used the hyperbole, unless you hate your father and mother and your family, you can't follow me? Now, obviously, Jesus wants us to love our family, but his point is clear. If you have the vain pursuit of family above God, it'll be worthless in the end. Seek the Lord, not vanity. One more. Revenge. The vain pursuit of trying to get justice on your own. They took away my childhood. They took away my innocence. You took away my money. You took away my opportunity. And you want it back so bad, it becomes your vain pursuit. And you can't let that go to follow the Lord. We pursue all of these vain things to get the good life. We're no different than those people of Lystra. If I can just get this, then I'll be good. Can I tell you, Jesus has created you not for a good life, but a full life. You can pursue the good life forever, and it's vanity. Search for a full life, a life that is full in a relationship with God, relationship with others, and you're fulfilling the purpose that God has called you to. Jesus said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The good life is vanity, a rich and satisfying life with the Lord. I have come, in the NIV, I have come that they might have life and have it to its full. So let me ask you, is it pride or is it vanity? Maybe it's both. Is there pride? Where you're projecting yourself onto God. You want things to go your way. You want your mode of worship. Can I tell you, God wants to break that in you and say, I want you to experience me like you never have before and open your eyes, your mind, and your heart to worshipful service that you haven't experienced. When Angela and I left the Cox family after cleaning their home last week, I know a lot of you watched a little bit of that on Facebook. And Angela and I got in the car. We were sweaty. I was smelly. And we both just said, didn't that feel good? To worship the Lord. How does God want to stretch your worship? To give honor to him in a mode that maybe you haven't been accustomed to. Or maybe it's vanity, vain pursuit. You recognize that, man, I love the Lord, but I love this a little bit more. You cannot, listen to Paul's words. He said, When it comes to vanity, he said, turn from the vain things. It's as if he's saying, God is this way, and this vanity is causing you to veer off to the side, veer to the left, veer to the right, and you're going to miss it. And in the end, you will not end up where you intended to go because it's vanity. We hope that you got a lot out of today's message and that you'll share it with a friend. To stay connected with what's happening at First Assembly, Be sure to go to the App Store and type in 1-A-G-B-N to download the app. Remember, God created you to make a difference, so go and make a difference.